This morning we're looking at just one word. One word that is the key to understanding the whole of Christianity. If you're here this morning as someone who's not familiar with Christian things, you've come on a great week. Because this one word is absolutely foundational. If you get this word, it unpacks everything you need to know about Jesus. It's a word that comes three times in our passage, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8. It's the word grace. The grace of God is his undeserved kindness. And God's grace is all to do with salvation. You can see that in verse 5 and 8. They tell us it is by grace you have been saved. In other words, salvation is not something that you earn or merit. It's a free gift. At the beginning of our service, we sang what I guess is the most famous Christian hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So I've called the talk this morning, What's So Amazing About Grace? And let me give you the answer up front. Grace is amazing because it's absolutely indispensable. It's utterly undeserved and it's infinitely costly. Johnny and Bronwyn, Jamie and Aisha, Sophie, if you're listening, you've committed yourselves to encouraging Noni in the Christian faith. Pray for her to grasp grace. Teach it to her, model it for her, and above all, pray that God will open Noni's heart to grasp the wonder of his grace. Well, there's an outline for the talk on the back of your service sheets. As we unpack this concept of grace, you'll see what we're going to look at, why it's needed, what it achieves and how and what it produces. So firstly, why grace is needed. The Apostle Paul, who has been commissioned by Jesus himself, is writing here in this letter to the Ephesians. He's writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Uh, he's writing to people who have received God's grace. They've received the free gift of salvation. But Paul thinks it's important for them to remember what was true of them before they were saved. What would be true of them if not for the grace of God? And so I take it, if we're here this morning and we're following Jesus, we need this reminder too. And if we're here this morning and we're not following Jesus, then this is God's diagnosis of your spiritual condition. And it's pretty confronting. There are three big ideas in these opening verses. Paul says you were dead, you were enslaved, and you were condemned. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What does that mean? Because Paul goes on to say, your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So he's not talking about physical death, but another kind of death. Think of it like this. We all know there's a difference between being alive and really living. And the Bible talks in those kind of terms. It talks about true life, abundant life. Jesus said he came to bring life to the full. And Jesus said this life to the full is found in relationship with God. Again, I take it we'd all agree that it's relationships that make life worth living. And the Bible says that's absolutely right. And the relationship that really makes life worth living is a relationship with God himself. 
That's what we were created for. That's where true ultimate life is found, in relationship with the God who made you. And therefore, to be out of relationship with God is to be cut off from life. It is to be dead. Or think of it like this. When someone does something deeply offensive to their family, the other families, other family members may say, you are now dead to us. You've denied your identity. You've betrayed the family. You are dead to us. And what they mean by that, of course, is that there is no relationship. That's the kind of thing Paul is saying here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You had so offended and betrayed the God who made you that the relationship was totally broken. You were dead. Now, if this is the true diagnosis of our spiritual condition, then it shows very clearly why God's grace is so needed. See, if Paul had said that we were sick in our sins, then we might have some chance of helping ourselves, doing something to get back to a position of health. But by describing us as dead, Paul is saying we are utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. Next, Paul says that we were enslaved. Look again at verse 2. You followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's talking there about the devil, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, that is our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Paul is saying that without the intervening grace of God, the direction of our lives was set by the ways of the world, the devil, and the flesh. We were enslaved to that way of life. Now, when he says that, he's not just talking about really immoral people. Paul says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. See, Paul includes himself in this diagnosis. And if you know anything about Paul, you'll know that before being a Christian, he was an incredibly law-abiding person. The issue is your attitude to God. The question is not whether you've done anything illegal. It's not so much about what you do, but who you do it for. You see, you can reject God and lead a very immoral life, but you can also reject God and lead a very respectable life. Paul is saying we all naturally live our lives ignoring our creator. We don't love him. We don't thank him. We live our lives without um, little, if any, reference to him. We say, I am the master of my life. No one has the right to tell me what to do. I'm free to do whatever I want, so long as I don't hurt anyone else. That pattern of thought and life is the air we breathe. We're just going with the flow, aren't we? It seems so normal, so right. But Paul says we need to hear God's diagnosis. There's something seriously wrong if we're following a way of life that rejects the God who gives us every breath. Thirdly, we're condemned. Verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The idea of wrath can conjure up images of divine fury. You know, a god like Zeus 
sitting up in the clouds, throwing down thunderbolts on the people that arouse his displeasure. That is not the God of the Bible. When the Bible talks about God's wrath, it's not talking about uncontrolled rage, but rather God's settled anger and opposition towards all that is evil. The Bible is clear. There will be a day of judgment, a day of wrath, when justice will be done, wrongs will be righted, and the guilty will be punished. Some people don't like the idea of God's judgment, but when you think about it, it's actually a good thing. I mean, what would we think of a God who didn't respond with opposition to war crimes and sex trafficking? What would we think of a God who was indifferent to evil? People sometimes ask, why doesn't God do anything about the evil and justice in the world? Well, God has promised to do something. There will be a day when true justice is finally done, when all wrongs are righted, when the guilty are punished. The trouble is, Paul says, that when that judgment comes, each and every one of us will be found guilty. On our own, we're all deserving of wrath. Now, I acknowledge this is pretty heavy stuff. And I imagine many of you are reacting against this diagnosis. You don't agree. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel true for you and the people that you know. Can I say with all gentleness, what feels true to you or me is not what determines reality. If God has spoken, we need to listen. The story is told of three men who go to the hospital for a routine scan and each one receives the same diagnosis. The doctor tells them they have a life-threatening condition that needs immediate treatment. The first man responds with outrage. How dare you criticise me? How dare you try to scare me? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm in perfect health. You're a doctor. You're meant to make me feel good about myself. How dare you? And he storms out. The second man responds with indifference. He says, well, thanks for letting me know. Doesn't sound too serious. I might get around to looking at it in a few years' time. What I really need help with is my elbow. It's a bit sore. Do you have anything for that? The third man responds quite differently. He says, obviously I'm shocked that I have such a serious condition. I had no idea. But I'm so glad you've told me about it and that there's something that can be done. Why don't you tell me more about that treatment? God's diagnosis is sobering. It's confronting. And Paul is labouring the point in order to highlight the seriousness of our condition so that we will wonder, so that we'll grasp the wonder of God's grace, that we'll see that it's absolutely indispensable and it's utterly undeserved, that without it, we are lost. But with it, well, that's the next point. What God's grace achieves and how. Verse 4 is the big turning point in the passage. But God. Into this desperately hopeless situation, God intervenes. So look again at verse 4. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. These three actions of God seem to correspond with the three elements of our diagnosis. We were dead, but God has given us life, life to the full. He's restored us to living, loving relationship with himself. We were enslaved, but God raised us up, set us free to live a new life, the life we were created to live, a life of joyful obedience. We were condemned, deserving of wrath, but God has seated us with Jesus in heaven. We have the highest status imaginable, crowned with glory and honour, showered with incomparable grace. How does God accomplish this great reversal? Well, did you notice that for each of the three things God does for us, it says he does them with Christ. You see, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're actually united with him. The Bible says the relationship between a Christian and Jesus is a marriage. He takes you as his own and all that is his becomes yours. When my wife Corinne and I got married, we said to each other, all that I am, I give to you and all that I have, I share with you. It's an expression of the profound oneness that there is in marriage. Our union with Jesus is even deeper than that. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we are given new life now and will receive resurrected bodies in the life to come. Just as Christ is seated with honour in heaven, we are seated with him and given the same honour and blessing. Everything Jesus deserves becomes ours. But there's a flip side to this union. We get what he deserves, but he gets what we deserve. And that is the cost of grace. As you read through the story of the Bible, you find this tension between God's justice and his mercy, between his wrath and his love. The question that drives the story of the Bible forward is this. How can God be just in punishing sin as it deserves and show mercy to sinners? That tension is resolved at the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced spiritual death so that we might receive the gift of life. He was forsaken so we could be forgiven. He was abandoned so we could be embraced. He was cut off so we could draw near. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath that you and I deserve so that we might receive the honour and blessing that he deserves. And why did God do all this? Verse 4 tells us, because of his great love for us, because he is rich in mercy. We didn't deserve it. We didn't even ask for it. But God took the initiative 
He saw us in our plight and he stepped in to save us. It's why baptism is such a beautiful picture of grace. Because the person being baptised does nothing. It's done to them. It's done for them. All they do is receive the promises and blessings of God. See, the reason for God's great kindness towards us, the, the reason for him saving us lies not in me and my performance, but in his loving heart. Modern love songs always have a reason for love, that there's something in the beloved that triggers the love of the lover. So it's the way you look tonight, or the way you make me feel. It's the smile on your face, the truth in your eyes, the touch of your hand. There's something in you that draws out my love. But not so with us, thank God. From verses 1 to 3, it's clear we're utterly undeserving of his love. He doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is. And therefore, can you see, there is great security in God's love because it doesn't depend on me and my performance. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And wonderfully, there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. So what's so amazing about God's grace, well, we've seen why it's needed and we've seen what it achieves. Finally, we'll look at what God's grace produces. I want to suggest if you truly understand God's grace, if you truly grasp the free gift of salvation, it will utterly transform your life. Now, there are all kinds of gifts and they're certainly not all life-changing. You know, if you go to the Women's and Children's Hospital, you may get a visit from Captain Starlight. And if you're lucky, you might receive a free gift. Over the years, I reckon we've, or at least our children, have received a couple of soft toys and a few other things, most of which have ended up in the op shop. That kind of gift is nice. It will bring a degree of happiness to your child, but it's not going to change your life, is it? You, don't, you didn't really need it, and it's not particularly costly. But now imagine that you live in a part of the world that doesn't have free health care, and you go to the children's, and when you go to the children's hospital there, it turns out your child needs a life-saving operation, which you have no hope of being able to afford. What if you know someone who hears about your situation and decides to sell their possessions to raise the money. And they give you that money freely so your child can have the surgery. And imagine that this person is not a friend or a family member. In fact, they're someone who you have ignored your whole life, maybe even mistreated. And yet when they heard about your need, they responded in amazing love. Now, that kind of gift will change your life, won't it? Because it met your desperate need and it was very, very costly and it was totally undeserved. When you truly grasp the grace of God, the free gift of salvation, it will transform your life because it's absolutely indispensable and it's infinitely costly and utterly undeserved.
Let me quickly mention three things that a true grasp of God's grace will produce. Firstly, humble confidence. When you, when you grasp the grace of God, it humbles you to the dust and it lifts you to the stars. It tells you, as Tim Keller says, that you are more sinful than you'd ever admit, yet more loved than you'd ever dream. And so grace produces this rare combination of qualities, humility and confidence. You can be confident because you're secure in God's love. You're fully forgiven and accepted. Yet you're humble because you know that those blessings are not things you've earned or deserved, just given to you freely by grace. Verse 8 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Secondly, grateful praise. I know two words in sign language. This is the sign for boasting. It's all about me and how good I am. This is the sign for praise. It's all about God and how good he is. One clear evidence that a person has grasped grace is that they're always talking about how good God has been to them. Right at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian and your life is not characterized by joyful, grateful praise, let me ask you, have you forgotten your desperate need? Have you forgotten how incredibly blessed you now are? Have you forgotten the cost of your salvation and the amazing love of God? Humble confidence. Grateful praise. Thirdly, a life of love. Some people think that gr grace will lead to selfish living. You know, if I believed this, that what I do doesn't matter, I'd have no motivation to live a good life. But that's just not true. Love awakens love. If I know what God has done for me, I can't help but be motivated to respond and live a life of love. You see, grace doesn't do away with good works. It just puts them in their rightful place. Good works are not the basis of our salvation. They're the fruit of it. Verse 8 again. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace motivates you to live a life of service out of love for the God who served and saved you. Every day is now an opportunity to bring glory to God and blessing to others. A bit later in Ephesians, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The church is called to be a community of grace, shaped by, saturated by grace. A community of people who share a profound experience of the life-transforming grace of God. A community characterised by kindness and compassion, where all are welcome and the weak receive special care. A community of mercy, where conflicts are dealt with and forgiveness flows freely. Above all, a community of love that puts the amazing grace of God on display to our watching world. For the church family here at Barney's, let's give thanks for the ways in which this calling is true of us. And let's pray that God would deepen our grasp of his grace so that it might be realised more and more. Let me lead us in a prayer now. Our loving Father God, thank you for your grace that comes to us free of charge, yet cost you so much. Without it, we would be utterly lost, yet with it, we are supremely blessed. Help us all to receive your grace, to grasp it more and more deeply, so that we would be people of grateful praise and humble confidence, living lives of love, for the glory of your name. Amen.